up, everybody? Welcome back. Full-length episode on the way. We got episode 28, Quality of Service. Uh, this one I talked about previously doing and uh, just kind of never got around to knocking out the outline. Finally, uh, I have some time uh, post-appointment to knock out some uh, some stuff, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to refocusing and getting out some uh, some new material. And so we're, uh, we're doing episode 28, Quality of Service, today. Uh, and I'm going to start like I always do with the history segment. And today we're going to talk about Oliver Hazard Perry. Uh, I'm kind of surprised I, I never got to this guy quite yet, uh, but I'm excited to be able to do that. Uh, we spoke previously about a really good friend of his, James Lawrence, and uh, and the battle he was involved in that birthed the uh, the origin or the, the namesake of this podcast, I guess. And then uh, Oliver Hazard Perry is a good friend of his and actually used that. He was so inspired by that. Uh, don't give up the ship cry at the at the end of his life uh, that he used the first battle flag which is the origin of the flag uh, that you'll see uh, at the Naval Academy if you ever get the opportunity to go there but uh, so I'm gonna read through uh, it's pretty long but I thought it was really cool uh, a lot of really great information it get, went into some detail about uh, some of his background leading up to uh, the Battle of Lake Erie and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through this it's fairly long uh, so bear with me If a contest had been staged to offer a prize for the most frustrated man in North America in the summer of 1813, United States Navy Master Commandant Oliver Hazard Perry would have won it hands down. In February, the 27-year-old Rhode Islander had been ordered to the northwest frontier to take command of a fleet that would hopefully give the United States control of Lake Erie. After a harrowing journey through the winter wilderness, he arrived at tiny Pennsylvania town of Erie, then also known as Presque Isle, to discover that the fleet was non-existent and not likely to appear anytime soon. A patriotic local ship captain, Daniel Dobbins, had a few semi-finished vessels on the stocks at an improvised shipyard, but his armament consisted of a single cannon. The only guards to protect these nautical skeletons against a British raid from across the frozen lake were a haphazard company of 60 dispirited militiamen without guns or ammunition. There was no hope for rigging, no canvas, and no sails. Perry had been told that 50 carpenters, caulkers, ship joiners, and sawyers were awaiting him at Presque Isle. Not one had arrived. The town of 76 houses was semi-deserted. Many of its 400 inhabitants had fled, fearful that the royal raiders from Canada would be accompanied by their Indian allies, scalping knives in hand. Worsening Perry's woes was the haphazard command situation. His immediate superior was Commodore Isaac Chauncey, who was more than 200 miles away at Sackett's Harbor at the eastern end of Lake Ontario. A warrior rather than a fighter, Chauncey claimed to have his hands full trying to retain control of Ontario. He had commandeered 150 sailors that Perry had brought with him from Rhode Island, all personally trained and passionately loyal to him. Chauncey reacted to Perry's pleas for men, guns, and equipment with maddening silence. Also in this dirty game was a fat, sloppy, Maryland-born Navy officer named Jesse Duncan Elliott. Also a master commandant, the equivalent of a present-day commander, Elliott had won a victory of sorts at Fort Erie the previous fall when he led a company of soldiers in a surprise attack on two ships guarding the British bastion at the southwestern end of the Niagara River. He captured both craft, but one became grounded and was burned. Elliot took not-so-silent umbrage when Perry was named commander on the Lake Erie. Operating out of the Black Rock Navy Yard near Buffalo, the Marylander intercepted the few men Chauncey had forwarded and sent the dregs to Perry. All this made the thin-skinned Perry wonder if his naval career were not fatally jinxed. 
His father, Christopher Perry, had been a successful merchant ship captain who joined the U.S. Navy to fight in the quasi-war against revolutionary France that raged in the sea lanes off the Atlantic coast and in the Caribbean from 1798 to 1800. He had taken 13-year-old Oliver along as a midshipman, but the father's naval career had been aborted by Thomas Jefferson's election in 1800. The Pacific's new president saw no need for a large navy. He considered it likely to embroil the United States in foreign wars. The number of warships was cut from 43 to 13, and only nine captains and 36 lieutenants were retained on the rolls. Midshipmen shrank from 354 to 150, and by sheer chance, it would seem one of those retained was young Perry. For the next decade, Perry's naval career was routine. He advanced in rank during cruises to the Mediterranean, where he took part in the spasmodic wars with the piratical Barbary states that eventually forced the Muslim dynasties along the North African seaboard to stop preying on American merchantmen. In 1809, he was given command of the schooner rig dispatch boat Revenge. The following year, during a night of heavy fog, Revenge grounded on Watch Hill Reef offshore from his native Rhode Island and was soon demolished by the pounding surf. Although Perry was exonerated in a court-martial, the pilot took the blame, losing his ship left a cloud over his name. Thereafter, Perry found himself commanding flotillas of small gunboats, each armed with a single cannon. These warships, Manku, would supposedly defend American ports and rivers against enemy attack. The gunboats were Jefferson's idea of a defensive navy. Every sailor knew the wallowing creatures were worthless, but the oblivious president had 240 of them built. The British Navy, meanwhile, continued to outrage the American public by searching and seizing U.S. merchant ships and impressing seamen as part of the worldwide blockade of Napoleonic France. Not even an unprovoked attack on the American frigate Chesapeake, killing three men wounding 18, aroused the sage of Monticello's fighting blood. Jefferson's successor, James Madison, reversed the policy of non-resistance to British arrogance. A new generation of young politicians would follow his lead, and soon congressional war hawks such as Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun were calling for a declaration of hostilities and an invasion of Canada. But the new president had inherited a shrunken, demoralized regular army, a minuscule navy, and had done nothing to repair the damage. The War Department consisted of eight clerks. The Army did not have either a quartermaster or an ordnance department. Only four American frigates were seaworthy. The British already had a ship of the line and seven frigates off the Atlantic coast. Worse, the populous commercial states of New England regarded the war with distaste and declined to call out their militias. Worst of all, the Army was led by a bevy of aged generals left over from the American Revolution. The result was a series of military disasters. The most unnerving of these reversals took place at Fort Detroit in August of 1812 when the Battle of Saratoga veteran Brigadier General William Hull surrendered 1,600 men to a besieging British Indian force of roughly equal numbers. With Detroit went the vast Michigan Territory, the current states of Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, of which Hull was the governor. The British immediately began formulating plans for a client state in the heart of American in the heart of the American continent, led by the most gifted Indian warrior statesman of the era, the Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. The whining hole's chief excuse was British control of Lake Erie, which had enabled the enemy to transport cannons and an army to waylay him. Only at sea did the Americans find anything to cheer about. Frigates such as United States and Constitution won ship-to-ship slugfests against British counterparts, while dozens of privateers took to the deep to wreak havoc on English merchantmen. 
but the British, with more than 1,000 ships in their battle fleet, were confident that their overwhelming numbers would soon correct the spate of saltwater impudence. The Northwest remained a crucial theater. As thousands of Indians joined their side, the British saw a chance to disable the entire American westward enterprise. Seeing what was at stake, hundreds of fighting men in Kentucky rushed to enlist. Major General William Henry Harrison, governor of Indiana Territory, who had defeated Tecumseh and his Indians at the Battle of Tippecanoe shortly before the war began, was given command of this new militia army. He soon found he was unable to advance because his long supply line was tenuous to the point of non-existence. With the British in Detroit and in two other former American forts, King George III's men and Tecumseh's braves could strike at this lifeline at will. When a thousand Kentuckians took into their heads to lunge forward and capture the British fort near Frenchtown, present-day Monroe, Michigan, on the River Raisin, they were wiped out to a man by a British Indian counterattack from the Allies' Lake Erie main base, Fort Malden. A similar attack on Fort Meigs on the Maumee River was beaten off only after desperate fighting. A chastened Harrison obeyed orders from the Secretary of War, John Armstrong, to go on the defensive until Perry gained control of the lakes. Perry was hard at work, exhorting, organizing, and cajoling. He journeyed to Pittsburgh and befriended a naval agent there, who was soon shipping rope, canvas, lead for keels, and cannons up the Allegheny River in French Creek. Perry found his 50 lost carpenters on this trip, cursing the government for shipping their tools separately over a route that took three times as long. He also persuaded the commander of the Pennsylvania militia to give him 500 men to guard the Presque Isle shipyard. Perry did everything in his power to cooperate with Commodore Chauncey when that timid leader asked for his assistance to attack Fort George at the northwest end of Niagara River. Sword in hand, Perry led Marines in a crucial charge that carried the day. A grateful Chauncey wrote, he was present at every point where he could be useful under showers of musketry, but fortunately escaped unheard. The victory prompted the British to abandon Fort Erie at the opposite end of the river, enabling Perry to reinforce his fleet with five small former merchant ships from the Black Rock Navy Yard. Perry, 250 sailors and soldiers, and teams of oxen had to drag the ships into Lake Erie against the Niagara River's formidable current. It took six days of what Perry called one of the hardest tasks I've ever faced. The fatigue is almost incredible. Ill with fever and exhaustion, Perry led the virtually unarmed ships, they had only seven cannons between them, down the lake toward Presque Isle against a demoralizing headwind with three ships of the British Lake Erie fleet in close pursuit. At one point, a fog miraculously descended when the two fleets were only half a mile apart. As Perry tacked into Presque Isle's sheltered bay, the sails of the British men-of-war appeared on the horizon. These heroics did not persuade Commodore Chauncey to send Perry any sailors. As May dissolved into June and into July, Perry's shipbuilding program was almost complete. He had constructed two 110-foot, 500-ton brigs with 20 guns each, three gunboats, and a pilot boat. With extra cannons added to his five Black Rock ships, Perry had a fleet that outgunned the British, but he needed 740 sailors to man it, and he only had 120. Not a few of these were down with Lake Fever, a first cousin of Typhus. Letters arrived from the Secretary of the Navy and from General Harrison urging Perry to attack the enemy. Harrison reported that scouts had predicted another British foray against Fort Meigs, the mortified Perry could only report, I regret that the force under my command is not yet ready for service. As soon as the government forwards men, I shall sail. In mid-July came the news from the east that did nothing to raise Perry's morale. One of, the closest na one of his closest Navy friends, Captain James Lawrence, commanding the Star-Crossed Chesapeake, had been defeated and killed in a ship-to-ship -ship action with HMS Shannon off Boston. Perry was deeply moved by Lawrence's dying words, Don't give up the ship.
He asked a sailmaker to embroider them on a strip of blue cloth, which he planned to use as his personal battle flag. He also named the brig he intended to make his flagship, Lawrence. Its sister ship was christened Niagara. The news of James Lawrence's heroic, though losing, fight only intensified Perry's frustration at his immobility. Even more galling was the way the British fleet, now commanded by Captain Robert Herrett Barclay, a one-armed veteran of Trafalgar, sailed back and forth a few miles outside Presque Bay, taunting him. Perry's letters to Chauncey began to acquire a cutting edge. On July 20th, he wrote, The enemy's fleet of six sail are now off the bar of this harbor. What a golden opportunity should we have men. On July 23rd, Perry grew even more vehement. For God's sake, and yours and mine, he wrote to Chauncey, send me men and officers. Send on the commander, my dear sir, for the Niagara. She's a noble vessel. Send me officers and men and honors within our grasp. In his desperation, he urged the Commodore to come to Lake Erie with men from his squadron and take charge. Perry said he would rejoice whoever commands to see this force on the lake. A few days later, 70 men arrived from Black Rock in a ship commanded by Perry's cousin, Sailing Master Stephen Champlin. Many were African Americans, others militiamen. Few had ever been on a ship before. Perry told Chauncey they were a motley set, but he had reached a point where he was pleased with anything in the shape of a man. At the end of July, another 60 men arrived. Most were too sick to stand. Others still trembled with residue of lake fever. In desperation, Perry tried recruiting men from the militia in Presque Isle, but only a handful responded. An ongoing worry was the possibility that during darkness of night, the British would send armed men in boats to destroy Perry's fleet. Perry pleaded with the Pennsylvania militiamen to stand guard aboard the unmanned ships. They refused. In a quotation that summed up why regular Army and Navy men despised the militia, the captain of one company told Perry, I told the boys to go, but the boys won't go. Shortly before midnight on July 31st, Perry was awakened by an aide with startling news. The British squadron had disappeared. Their porthole lights were no longer visible offshore. Perry hurried to the lakefront to see for himself. The British had vanished. What had happened? Perry suddenly recalled a rumor that Captain Barclay had been invited to a dinner honoring him and his officers at Port Dover on the Canadian shore. He had apparently accepted, confident that Perry was never going to get his 500-ton brigs across the shallow bar at the mouth of Presque Isle's Harbor. We now know this was the case. At the dinner, the British veteran told his audience he expected to find the Yankee brigs hard and fast on the bar when I return, in which predicament it will be but a small job to destroy them. Barclay had a few veteran lake sailors in his fleet who knew the depth of Presque Isle's bar, and his experienced eye had no difficulty computing how much water a 500-ton brig drew. What Barclay did not compute was Perry's seafaring know-how and the technical skills of the shipbuilders he had accumulated at Presque Isle. By 4 a.m. on Sunday, August 1st, Perry had his fleet in line at the mouth of the harbor and was soon at work getting the brigs Lawrence and Niagara across the bar. At first, it appeared impossible. Daniel Dobbins carefully sounded the bar and found that with an east wind blowing in some places, there was only four and a half feet of water. At no place, there was more than a fathom, six feet. The brigs drew nine feet. Perry, however, had devices that Captain Barclay apparently thought were too sophisticated for the Americans to construct, camels. In the shipyard, appropriately named shipwright Sidney Wright had constructed four of these gadgets. Invented by the Dutch, they were essentially rectangular watertight pontoons. When the water was pumped into them, they sank. When they were lashed to the ship, water was pumped out, and they rose, theoretically lifting the ship with them. Lawrence was the first to be cameled. The process turned out to be much more complicated, in fact, than the theorists expected. The first try lifted the brig only about three feet. 
Perry offloaded the cannons and stores. Men in small boats and some on foot in shallow water tugged heroically at the cables, but Lawrence remained stuck in the muddy sand. A second try with more camels was made the following day. There were more desperate tugging from the sailors in, in the boats. The do-nothing Pennsylvania militiamen, inspired by the Herculean challenge, volunteered their muscle power as well. On the morning of August 4th, Lawrence slid into deep water and the cans were hastily returned on board. Now it was Niagara's turn. By this time, Perry and the rest of his men were in their third day of continuous frantic effort, during which they got no more than snatches of sleep. On August 5th, with Niagara stuck on the bar, about to be fitted with camels, the exhausted Americans were rattled by a cry. Sail ho! It was Barclay, back from his testimonial dinner. There was scarcely a man aboard Lawrence. The rest of Perry's fleet had crossed the bar, but they were pipsqueaks from a firepower point of view. If Barclay had attacked, it would have been a slaughter. But as the British fleet drew closer, the wind shifted to the west. Lawrence's nose swung in their direction, and Niagara's followed suit, giving Captain Barclay the impression that Perry was coming out to fight him. To confirm the bluff, Perry ordered the 110-ton cutter Ariel and the even smaller schooner Scorpion to attack the enemy fleet. They headed toward the British and unleashed bold blasts from their long-range guns. Aboard Lawrence, the crew had hastily boarded, and Perry ordered his drummer to beat to quarters. The shaken Barclay signaled his captains to put their helms over and headed for open water again. Ironically, the British commander was as short-handed as Perry. He had only 50 trained sailors in his fleet. The rest were Canadian militia and British Army soldiers. Both he and the British Army commander, General Henry Proctor, had pleaded with high command to give them enough men to attack Erie, but higher ranks stonewalled them not unlike the way Chauncey had frustrated Perry. Men and supplies were shipped from east to west, and the intervening commanders clung to as many as they dared so they could maintain superiority on their own fronts. On August 5th, Barclay had an even better reason for retreating from Perry's pretended assault. Another large ship was about to be added to his fleet, a 19-gun brig that had been built at Malden. That was where the British commander headed and was so impressed with this sturdy newcomer that he named it Detroit in honor of the victory over Hull and made it his flagship. On August 6th, Perry, still shaky from exhaustion, led his fleet out on the lake but found no trace of the British. Back off Presque Isle, he provisioned his ships and discharged some militiamen who had volunteered for the brief voyage. While he was having dinner, Perry got unexpected good news from the east. Jesse Duncan Elliott was on his way with 89 seamen, two acting lieutenants, eight midshipmen, and a master's mate. These reinforcements were soon on Presque Isle, and the delighted Perry gave Elliott command of Niagara. The new arrival's demeanor toward Perry was noticeably cool. Elliot all but scoffed in his face when Perry spoke about his love of country and military glory. Without so much as a buy your leave, Elliot took all the best men from the new draft for Niagara. Sailing Master William Taylor, who had served with Perry on revenge, considered this a breach of courtesy and warned the captain that Elliot was not his friend. But Perry, delighted by the reinforcements, ignored him. Perry was soon heading down the lake for a conference with General Harrison. The two men liked each other on sight. Perry had already characterized Harrison as the only American general in the war with any ability. Harrison suggested South Bass Island's sheltered harbor of Put-In Bay, located about 30 miles from Malden, as an anchorage for Perry's ships while he waited for the British to emerge for a fight to the finish. The general also recruited 150 Kentucky riflemen to serve as Marines aboard the fleet. These reinforcements were diluted by an outbreak of lake fever that had half of Perry's men groaning in their hammocks. Perry, his younger brother Alexander, and the fleet's three doctors were soon on the sick list. A decision to boil all the drinking water helped slow the outbreak, and the application of mustard plasters got Perry back on his feet, but for the better part of a week, the Americans were in no shape to fight. 
Once more, Perry's luck held, and Barclay was busy arming and rigging Detroit and made no attempt to challenge him. On the evening of September 9th, both fleets were ready for action. Perry summoned his officers to Lawrence for a final conference. He stressed that the Americans could only win if they closed with the enemy. Most of the cannons aboard Lawrence and Niagara were 32-pounder carronades, which flung a tremendous weight of metal. But these smashers had a range of only 250 yards. Barclay had 35 long guns that could hit home at a mile. Perry also assigned specific ships in the enemy fleet to each of his captains, but he warned them that they might have to improvise. Again and again, he stressed Admiral Horatio Nelson's advice, if you bring the enemy close alongside, you cannot be out of your plan. At 5 a.m. the next day, Perry was still asleep in his cabin when a fist pounded on the door and someone shouted, Sail ho! He was soon on the quarterdeck, peering into the distance at the sails of the British fleet approaching Put-in Bay. At 7 a.m., he ordered his fleet to get underway. The southwest breeze was distressingly light. Perry ordered out boats to tow Lawrence around the two islands that sheltered the bay. As the men strained at the oars, Perry glanced up at the blue sky. Above them hovered an eagle. He pointed out the national bird to nearby sailors as a good omen. As they neared the open lake, Perry's prophecy about the eagle seemed to come true. The breeze abruptly shifted to the southeast, giving the American fleet the weather gauge, the ability to attack with the wind in their favor. On all nine ships, the grim preparations for battle were in progress. The decks were sprinkled with sand, then sprayed with water to guarantee a footing when they became slippery with blood. Cutlasses for boarding parties were stacked in opportune places. Round shot, canister, and grape shot were piled beside the guns. The breeze remained light, in fact too light for Perry's battle plan. With the lake as calm as the proverbial mill pond and Perry's ships moving at a bare two knots, the advantage lay with the British long guns. To counter this threat, Perry ordered the schooners Ariel and Scorpion, which had long guns, to take positions on Lawrence's weather bow. But they were a weak response at best, with only five guns between them. Even more worrisome was the way the four U.S. gunboats, Summers, Tigris, Porcupine, and Trip, had fallen a good two miles behind a Dolores tribute to their former careers as plotting merchantmen. Detroit's long guns opened a murderous fire on all but drifting Americans, with Lawrence its main target. The green wood and hasty construction of the Prestile shipyards soon became apparent. A musket ball could penetrate Lawrence's sides, which were only two inches thick. 12 and 24 pound shot ripped through the hull, tearing off arms and legs and flinging deadly splinters into the men's bodies. It was an agonizing ordeal to which Perry's carronades, still out of range, could make no reply. When he finally drew within 700 yards, Perry fired a broadside and was dismayed to see it made little impression on Detroit, whose planking was a foot thick and reinforced by far more frames than Perry's ship. While Perry piled on every yard of sail aboard his flagship to get closer to Detroit, Jesse Elliott in Niagara seemed content to keep his distance and bombard his assigned antagonist, Queen Charlotte, with his two long-range 12-pounders. Since Charlotte was armed with 24-pounder carronades, it could not return fire. Its captain bore away and joined Detroit in the attack on Lawrence. That was bad news for Perry. By the time he closed to 300 yards and began blasting Detroit with his carronades, the devastatingly accurate fire of Barclay's long guns had left many of his men dead or wounded. Two smaller British ships, Hunter and Chippeway, took on Ariel and Scorpion, depriving Lawrence of their support. Why doesn't Niagara come to help us? More than one sailor asked Perry as he strode the deck, encouraging his men and directing their fire. It was a question very much on Perry's mind as broadsides from Queen Charlotte began to wreak havoc on his ship. All Perry and his men could do was fight for their lives in a losing battle. For more than two hours, Lawrence took fearful punishment from both ships, while Elliot made no attempt to join the fight. 
Sailing master William Taylor, who had warned Perry about Elliot, later wrote, The Lawrence alone received the fire of the whole British squadron. We were not supported as we ought to have been. By 2.30, Taylor reported 22 men and officers lay dead on the decks and 66 wounded, every gun dismounted, carriages knocked to pieces, every strand of rigging cut off, mast and below decks, surgeon's mate Usher Parsons struggled to help the wounded in the 9 by 10 foot wardroom, which had been an improvised sickbay. Many were beyond hope. Lieutenant John Brooks, the commander of the Marines, was struck in the thigh by a cannonball and horribly mangled. He was carried below, screaming in agony, begging Perry to kill him. The wardroom was no safer than the deck. During the action, five cannonballs passed through the room, Parsons told his parents in a letter shortly after the battle. Seconds after he finished putting a tourniquet on a midshipman's arm, the young man was struck in the chest by a cannonball and instantly killed. A seaman with both arms fractured had both legs shattered by another hurtling 24-pound projectile. He died within an hour. The final shot from Lawrence was fired by Perry himself, manning the last intact gun. When that gun, too, was knocked out, defeat seemed inevitable. Only 18 men were still on their feet. The British ship stopped firing, expecting Perry to strike his colors. No other choice seemed possible, but Perry's eyes were on the Niagara. The brig was performing a maneuver as strange as its previous actions. Pulling past Caledonia, Elliot came almost abeam Lawrence, but he made no attempt to interpose his ship between the British and the stricken flagship. Caledonia was permitted to make this heroic gesture on its own. One of Perry's wounded lieutenants, following the captain's eyes, snarled through teeth gritted with pain. That brig will not help us. See how he keeps off and will not come close to the action? I'll fetch him up, Perry said. Gazing down the deck littered with dead and dying, Perry saw his gig was still intact, another example of his incredible luck. He summoned two lieutenants and sailing master Taylor, all of them wounded, and left them in charge of Lawrence with the authority to do whatever they judged necessary to save the lives of the wounded and the handful still unscathed. He ordered his personal battle flag, don't give up the ship, lowered from the mainmast. Many of the wounded on the deck wept and cried out in protest. They thought he was surrendering, and so did the British. Perry boarded the gig with four oarsmen and ordered them to pull for the Niagara. Captain Barclay, with all of his own small boats smashed, may have thought that Perry was coming to Detroit to surrender his sword. It took about five minutes for Perry to emerge from the shroud of battle smoke lying on the water and become visible to the British gunners. They opened up on him with every cannon still capable of firing. Round shot, canister, and grape shot hissed around the boat. But Perry's luck made him and his boat crew inviolable. The oarsmen and the captain were drenched with spray, and one version has it that the oars were splintered and that the boat was holed, but in 15 minutes, Perry was within hailing distance of Niagara. Grimy with powder, haggard, and exha- haggard with exhaustion, Perry came aboard to be greeted by Elliot with the most inane, imaginable question. How was the day going? Bad enough, Perry snarled. We have been cut all to pieces. He paused momentarily and glanced toward Lawrence, drifting helplessly, then peered at the distant gunboats. Why are the gunboats so far astern? I'll bring them up, Elliot said. Do so, sir, was Perry's curt retort. The unspoken part of this supposed conversation is far more significant. Elliot, obviously mortified to find Perry still alive, was anxious to get as far away from him as possible. Perry, still determined to win the battle, was even more inclined to give him no share in the victory. There was no reason to order Elliot, the second-ranking American officer in the fleet, to bring the gunboats into the fray. A junior officer or midshipman could have relayed that command. Their handful of cannons could not have much impact on the struggle. The mere fact that Elliot surrendered command of his ship is virtually de facto proof that he was ashamed of his treacherous performance and incapable of facing Perry, much less fighting beside him. As Perry took charge of Niagara, his officers ordered Lawrence's battle flag lowered. 
They were unable to mount further resistance. Aboard the British ships, a cheer broke out the silence. They thought they had won the battle. Perry had other ideas. Niagara was virtually untouched. Only a handful of men had been wounded by long-range shots. Up the mainmast went Perry's motto flag and his captain's pennant. At that moment, the breeze quickened. Perry laid on all available sail and bore down on the startled British. Captain Barclay attempted to bring the shot up Detroit about so he could confront Perry with his starboard battery, which was relatively undamaged. At the same moment, Queen Charlotte, its captain dead, tried to maneuver into position for a broadside of its own. A shot from one of Niagara's long guns tore through its topsails, and Charlotte veered into Detroit, entangling its bow spirit in the flagship's rigging. Perry took deadly advantage of the accident. Shortening sail to check Niagara's speed, he waited until he was at right angles to both ships and hurled a blast from his 32-pounders, round shot mixed with canister, across their decks wreaking awful destruction. Simultaneously, the Kentucky sharpshooters in Niagara's rigging blazed away with their deadly rifles. Perry had not forgotten the rest of the British fleet. Plowing past stunned Detroit and Queen Charlotte, he ordered his port gunners to fire a broadside into the smaller Lady Prevost, Chippeway, and Little Belt. Deftly backing his topsails to reduce his headway, Perry again blasted Queen Charlotte with his starboard guns, adding a new target, the 10-gun sloop Hunter, which had been lurking astern of Detroit, putting an occasional shot in the Lawrence. His port gun blasted Lady Prevost, leaving only one man alive on the deck, its day's captain shot in the face by a musket ball, spars shot and tottering overhead in just an unimaginable wreck. Coming about, Perry once again raked Detroit and Queen Charlotte with his murderous 32-pounder carronades at pistol shot range. By this time, Elliot had brought the gunboats into the fight, adding a few cannons that compounded the British sense of being overwhelmed. All resistance collapsed. An officer on Queen Charlotte frantically waved a white handkerchief stuck on a boarding pike. On Detroit, Captain Barclay had been wounded twice by grape shot, first in the thigh, then in the shoulder. He was carried to the deck after being treated for the second wound. An officer told him the battle was lost, and Barclay, surveying his wrecked ship, agreed. He ordered the flag he had nailed to the mainmast hauled down. Since this would take time, a lieutenant ran to the rail and screamed, We surrender, while a seaman hastily shimmied up the mast to tear loose the flag. Hunter and Lady Prevost also surrendered. Small Fry, Chippeway, and Little Belt tried to flee, but were soon overtaken by the schooner Scorpion and gunboat Trip. It was over. In 15 minutes, Perry had snatched victory from what looked like certain defeat. He turned to a midshipman and ordered him to row ashore with a message to General Harrison. Pulling an envelope from his coat, Perry ripped off the back and wrote, Dear General, we have met the enemy and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Yours with great respect and esteem, O.H. Perry. All right, so that's what I got for the history segment today. Uh, I know it was long, but I thought it was really good, and I even went through it looking for parts to cut out, and it didn't really make as much sense as I went through it. Uh, but I just thought it was a really cool story, the way the battle unfolded, the way that uh, Oliver Hazard Perry never gave up, and then the fact that he had to fight all those different kinds of adversity just to get ready to fight the battle, and then the adversity within it. Um, from the guy that didn't participate on the Niagara and, and how it led up to him still winning the battle led to a, a legendary status uh, after Oliver Hazard Perry died. So I just thought it was a really great story on uh, the resilience and then what sailors can do, which kind of ties into what I want to talk about today, uh, which is quality of service. And so what I want to talk about is is what if it could be better? Like what if all the things that sailors yearn for could be theirs. And what if 
That's what would foster dramatically increased mission accomplishment. So leaders at all levels need to understand and embrace the concept of quality of service in order to retain the best and fully qualified while motivating them to crush the mission. And it all starts with accepting a fundamental truth. Sailors want to work hard. They want to crush the mission. And they want to be the best possible version of themselves. They want to be valuable contributors to a cause, to a greater good. And in doing this, they crave leadership. They don't always know exactly when, where, or how it will appear, but regardless of their complaints in the moment, they will recognize and respond when they see it. In order to do that for them, we need to create and protect their quality of service. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Just like always, before I get all the way into it, if you guys need anything from us at all, criticism, questions, concerns, suggestions, anything, don't give up the shit podcast at gmail.com. You can DM us on Instagram or Facebook messages with anything at all that you got for us, any any kind of feedback, whatever it, whatever it may be. Hit us up. Don't be shy. Uh, always looking for that honest feedback or to, to help you out with any questions that you may have. So let's just get into it. Let's get started. I'm excited to, to finally record an episode. <laughs> it's been a minute. Uh, it feels like it's been forever. So what is quality of service? It's a concept that was introduced to me by a mentor of mine. And it's it's many different things that add up to a concept, and I'll dive into each of them, but in general, it's a long-term sum of daily experiences in which leadership ensures that sailors are set up for success and ready to work. So they can understand the mission, show up to work prepared to execute the mission with all the required tools and materials, spend the assigned reasonable amount of time crushing it, and then get on liberty. And it includes valuing their time, recognizing their hard work, and then building trust and rapport and stockpiling credit so that when the mission demands rise, that the sailors rise to meet them. So so what makes this up, the concept of quality of service? I'm going to break it down into the major areas, but I'll inevitably miss something. And at the end, I'll summarize, and that's when you'll see the things that I missed. And that's when you add to it. You, you continue building on it. When you embrace this concept, it's, it's a living thing. It grows with you and your experience, allowing for constant improvement. You'll add to it. It will continually develop. So look for those gaps uh, at the end. Look for the things that apply to your daily uh, lives and routines that I miss. And that's how you can add to and improve on it. So Benjamin Franklin said, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. And that's the first thing that I want to talk about is is preparation. So how many times as a junior sailor did you come into work and, and you had no idea what you were doing that day? And then after an hour of waiting around, having quarters, and then being given a work list, you have to spend another hour or more preparing to do the work, preparing tags, doing paperwork finding the right technical documents, gathering tools and materials, setting up your work area, hanging tags, and on and on it goes. And most, if not all of these things could have been done yesterday. So you maybe get an hour of work done prior to lunch if you even start, or worse, you work through lunch and then continue on hungry. And then the 1500 work list comes out, a recipe for building a bitter jaded sailor that puts on roller skates and then separates at their EAOS, right? The, the take their ball and go home thing I always talk about. But what if a command builds a culture of planning and preparation? It's not a fantasy, like they exist. And I know this because I've seen it with my own eyes. I was lucky enough to make chief at a command that championed this kind of preparation. My mentor, who I often talk about, he's a now retired command master chief, created this concept of quality of service. It's the first time I ever heard of it. 
And while you didn't invent the principles that go into it, by putting this all together and programming it into his chiefs, you ensured that your sailors were set up for success. The tags were written, the material was staged, whatever was needed so that they could walk on board, hit a quick quarters, and then commence work. The duty section could spend the evening setting up for the next day, where day after duty sailors were off the ship by 1300, no exceptions. These things were made important. And to all the naysaying supervisors, surprise, productivity skyrocketed. It worked. It took a while. We had to sell people on it, but it worked. The next thing I want to talk about after preparation is time. If you ask a junior sailor what they value most 99% of the time, they will quickly answer with liberty, right? With liberty, of course. But what they're really saying is time. Their time is valuable. Say it with me. Their time is valuable. Seriously, on both ends of it. At work, their time is incredibly valuable to you, to the mission. So why waste that? I want them to spend every second possible being productive. That word is important because I don't want them working for time. I want them working for production. So how do I make them the most effective? I value their time. I treat it like it's valuable to me because I damn well know it's valuable to them. I ensure they are prepared and ready to work. By doing that, they become more productive. And I ensure that I hand them a list of things to accomplish before leaving and then follow up with cutting them out on liberty when it's accomplished. Also important wording. The work gets done to my standards. I train them on what the standards are and how they look and feel, so it's no surprise when I hit the deck plates to inspect what I expect. Their time on liberty is incredibly valuable to them, but if they know, they will do because they understand the results, both if they lowball their efforts, which means rework, or if they do it right the first time. Lowball me, and certain as death and taxes, you're redoing that job. Do it right consistently, I put you on liberty consistently. When that list I gave you is done, that I said, do these things and then you'll get to go home, you're going home. And the trust in me as a leader that I value their time is firmly established. They trust in it because I've demonstrated repetitively that it's gonna happen. So their time is valuable on both ends. Their liberty is valuable to them. Their product, productive work time at work is valuable to me, is valuable to us as a team, is valuable to mission accomplishment. So next is growth. I overheard a conversation between a sailor and his chief recently, and it demonstrated this perfectly. So he was pulled into the chief's mess to be disciplined for insubordination, essentially. His chief was spun up, extremely angry because he felt he'd been disrespected, and he probably had been. But he was so angry, he wasn't listening anymore. This conversation probably should have happened at this point, but it did. Had his chief stopped it, allowed himself to calm down, he probably would have heard what I heard which was a sailor frustrated with his underutilization. He felt he had more to offer and it wasn't being used correctly. He was, he was continually being put in the same role, standing the same watch, which in his mind was a junior watch station. He wanted increased responsibility. He felt like he, he had the skill set and that he had earned it. And he wanted a chance to show his ability. He wanted to grow. Sailors need to be put in positions to succeed. Some will ask for it like this guy did. Uh, and some won't. Some will shy away from it. They'll be scared of it. Uh, it's, it's our job as leaders to ensure that they're trained, that they're qualified, 
and that they become experienced. They learn the lessons along the way. This is, this is growth. And they want this. Sailors want to experience job satisfaction. They want to know they're contributing. This guy stood in the chief's mess and argued with his chief in a room full of chiefs. That's intimidating. That's how bad he wanted it. They need to be put in these positions, even if they fight it, to grow in their careers. They need to be told no. They need to be corrected, disciplined, trained, educated, and praised. They need to experience professional growth, and we need to make it a priority. I've trained sailors that never experienced it. That when I walked into the leadership position where I was I was responsible for, for their training, they had never experienced it, and they fought me tooth and nail every step of the way. But I never backed off it, even when I thought that maybe I was pushing too hard. And they showed me later that I wasn't wrong, and, and these are the sailors that reached back to me wearing anchors and thanked me for pushing so hard. I've literally received messages from sailors that said, had I not done those things, there's no way they would have had the success that they did. And that's what it's all about. That's why I do this. The last part and, and what, this, what that experience provided for me was validation. So we create this environment for our sailors, right? They trust us, they crush the mission and work really hard doing it. So now what? Validation, we reinforce the behavior by rewarding them for their efforts. Uh, this takes many shapes, and we've talked about some of them before, right? So we have awards at our disposal, uh, evaluations to document that performance, which helps them get promoted, advancements. We also have the Meritorious Advancement Program, Liberty, which we know they love, right? And then just like attaboys. I, had a, I have a guy that works for me now that uh, I, he just lights up when somebody recognizes his efforts with a handshake and a coin. He's just He's just a coin hawk, like because he knows what it means, and it means a lot to him uh, to just be positively reinforced for for how hard he's working. Um, that old Krusty mentor of mine I always talk about instituted this thing called a heavy hitter award, where no joke, he would have a wooden Louisville slugger made with someone's name burned into it and awarded at quarters, and he funded this out of his own pocket. Like try and tell me that wouldn't make your month. If your if your Cobb or CMC handed you something like that and recognized your hard work with a personalized Louisville Slugger, these are the things that like demonstrating to them that you genuinely care. You can't put a price on that. That's leadership, and that inspires followership. Your charges, understanding that you deeply care about them and their experience in this thing we call being a sailor, is the most important ingredient that there is to effective leadership. And finally, protect what you built. At some point, we're all at the mercy of, of, of someone or something, but that doesn't mean we roll over. Whether it's scheduling, work controls, planning, or last minute tasking, protect them. Uh, I'll never forget a hard and fast line that that CMC put down for the shipyard. No new work after 1500. If they couldn't find the time to bring the new job down to ship's force prior to 1500, then it waited until the next day, period. Uh, that was to protect sailors' liberty and then their ability to prepare for work the following day to successfully set them up for that, that quality of life and quality of service and good work they needed to do the next day. So, well, we all know shipyards can march to the beat of their own drum and at times and, and they were consistently violating this rule. So my CMC continually told them no to leave the ship. And then one day, finally frustrated, he just marched up to the daily planning meeting and in his words to my commanding officer, broke some dishes. Uh, he chastised them for not considering the effect of this practice on our sailors' quality of work and life. And it worked. 
They stopped, with very few exceptions, that were turned right around to, no, to the surprise of no one. The sailors appreciated that. They actually loved the fact that someone had their back, that it was unacceptable for someone to trample on them like that. Imagine that feeling as a junior sailor, like knowing that your CMC was protecting you from that kind of abuse of your time. And imagine how you would respond with work, with hard work, quality work. And that's exactly what happened. So why should you do it? Why should we pursue quality of service? Because it's worth the pain. The pain of getting people to buy into this concept because it's tough. And you're probably thinking about how tough, if not impossible, it would be. It is tough because it needs to be driven from the top, like from the command triad for it to catch on as a culture at your command. But there's nothing saying you can't institute it at your division or department level. It's worth the growing pains. You will experience them as you create this culture, right? But you won't panic because you know that it's worth the wait. Now, the other end of this, you'll have happy, productive sailors, which I know sounds like unicorns, but they're real, <laughs> that are deeply satisfied with their experience. It won't become less dis- difficult for you or them, but it will become so much more rewarding. You will make an impact, and it will be noticed within your division, department, and command. And it'll be noticed in your retention, in your mission accomplishment, and most importantly, it will be noticed by your sailors. So is it possible, or is this all unicorns and rainbows? Yes, yes, it's possible. And I'm not saying it was some pie in the sky viewpoint of something that sounds pretty. I've seen it with my own eyes, I've experienced it, and I wasn't imagining things. And I'm not the only one either. There are commands out there getting this right. Are they rare? Yes, but they exist. And that is important because this concept is battle tested. It worked on the most challenging platform my community has, and I'd argue that the Navy has. It inspired unimaginable productivity and mission accomplishment, and I wish I could talk more about it. We did amazing things, uh, things I still derive a, a sense of pride and a sense of accomplishment from five years removed. All it takes is commitment to your sailors. We can't treat them like consumables, and that happens far too often, and, it, and I don't think it's malicious. I think we sometimes look back at like how we had it and essentially think that they should be able to suck it up, that this generation is somehow weaker and handling it poorly. But that's not us because they want to work hard, all of them, even those millennials, right? We like to point at that generation thing, but they long for a sense of belonging to something greater than themselves. And we can give them that with quality of service. So it's summary time already that fell fast. Uh, So we talked about what qualities of service is. We talked about the principles and then how to apply them and how and why it's both important and possible that leaders at all levels should understand and embrace this concept of quality of service in order to retain the best and fully qualified and to continually motivate them. We need this to make those things happen. And it all comes back around to taking care of your sailors. We all want to do this. We all want this. As junior sailors, we want to work hard and accomplish a mission. As senior sailors, we want to take care of our sailors. No one at the senior or junior levels comes into this pursuit wanting to fail. No one shows up angry and bitter. We become this way by failing at the pursuit of quality service. We get lost in blindly pursuing mission accomplishment, which is what we need to do by just throwing bodies at the problem without considering the effect without pre-planning, without ensuring our sailors are prepared to tackle the challenges 
and and be recharged and reloaded to reattack tomorrow's challenges. Our job as leaders is to take care of sailors. And it's a sailor's job to take care of the mission. If we genuinely take care, real care of our charges, they will shock you with their passion, dedication, work capacity, and ingenuity in absolutely demolishing the mission. They've done this for hundreds of years, which was demonstrated through the history topic that I just spent 20 minutes of your lives droning on about. And I have absolute faith that they will continue to do so, so long as we continue to be good stewards of their service. That's what I got on quality of service. Um, I, I hope I did it justice. Uh, the way that that mentor of mine talked about it, uh, like I don't think I ever could do that, but uh, it's a powerful concept. It's a concept that works, and it's it's not new to anyone. It's not new to you hearing it now. It's just a way that wraps together all of the things we always wanted in leadership when we were growing up in the Navy, and that you need to reflect on and then you need to study and then you need to take a good hard look at how you're doing things and how your command's doing things and then find a way to incorporate these things that you always wanted from your leadership because they work, because they'll make things better and because they'll retain the quality sailors that we need to retain. They will keep kids from getting better and putting on those roller skates they like to talk so much about nowadays and keep them keep them in the Navy to develop into the leaders that we need because we need them. We absolutely need them. And I think too often we allow ourselves to get a little jaded and accept this false concept of, well, they'll get out and they'll be replaced by people like us that will develop into the leaders that will replace us. And that's not true. They're here now. The quality, intelligent, future naval leaders are right in front of you and you need to develop them to replace you now so that's what i got for episode 28 uh quality of service i hope you guys liked it i hope you guys like the stuff i've been putting out since i got back uh i will continue to do so i'm I'm refocusing on this i I got a lot of things i want to do and i think i'll have the time to do them now i think things are settling down for me a little bit and as always if you got suggestions Uh, comments, concerns, gripes, (laughs) moans, or questions, hit us up at don'tgiveuptheshippodcast at gmail.com. You can DM us on Instagram or Facebook message us. Let us know uh, what you got going on, and we'll get back to you as soon as we possibly can. Thank you so much for listening, and don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship.